0: All right. First John chapter 2, we are picking up in uh, this morning. Uh, we are going to be covering uh, a fairly just small section here, but one that is significant, one that maybe on the surface might not seem like it would go together, uh, but I think there's good reason for us to put... Uh, these two sections together um, Those two sections being verses 12 through 14 and then verses 15 to 17 So we're going to read those all and going to study and cover them this morning So if you would stand as we read uh, In honor of public public reading of God's word from verses 12 through 17 of 1st John chapter 2 This is John writing and he says this I am writing to you little children and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You may have a seat. Uh, Let's pray. Ask for God to bless our time as we study uh, together this morning. So Father, we do ask now as we come to your word that you would help us. Help us to understand better uh, the love that you have poured forth from us. And how, Lord, you are using that to uh, empower and use us uh, as your instruments in this world, which, as we know, is, is fading away. This world that is uh, tempting us and alluring us in so many different ways. We pray for your grace. It is a challenge to be a, a pilgrim in this world, and yet... We know that it is not impossible. You have not left us to do it on our own. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so I pray that even this morning, you would give wisdom to our ears as we seek to know what that faithfulness looks like. Uh, So pour your grace out upon us. We ask that you would use your spirit to move through the ministry of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to rewind. A little bit. Uh, If you remember, a few weeks ago, I asked you what you were up to in 2006. And I think we established that there were basically three of you outside of the adults in this room who were actually even born or alive in 2006. Remember, we talked about the great film, The Pursuit of Happiness. And so I thought, you know what, let's go back to 2006. Apparently, that was a great year for a lot of different things. But uh, there was another important moment that happened in 2006, one that has uh, endured, I would say, maybe a little bit more uh, than that movie did. Uh, You obviously may not remember the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, or maybe have not even seen it to this day, but you would certainly recognize the catchphrase that was developed in 2006 that has endured into commercials still today. In fact, if I were to complete the phrase, I'm sure most of you would know it immediately. Anybody want to take a guess as to what phrase that might be? What's a popular catchphrase slogan in commercials? What do you think? Just want to take a stab at it. You guys don't watch commercials? I don't believe that for a second. My favorite one Feed Your Happy. What's that? Feed Your, feed your Happy. Which one's that? It's obviously worked. (laughs) Feed feed you're happy. Okay, I like it. Uh, yes, it's 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 food. It's food related. Yeah, food category. So, so feed you're happy is great, but it's not okay. All right. Any other stats you want to take? At uh, yeah, I'm loving it. Comes from McDonald's, right? Okay, absolutely. That would work well with our idea of love this morning. It is not. I'm loving it, though. In fact, I'll start the phrase, and I'm going to guess you're going to complete it immediately here. Uh, the phrase is, America runs on... Duncan. 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 This, the coffee people understood that one. The rest of you are looking at me like, i Electricity, right? <laughs> <laughs> America runs on... <laughs> freedom, Uh, like America, right? (laughs) It's interesting, 2006, uh, Dunkin' Donuts adopted the catchphrase, or the slogan of America runs on Dunkin'. And they adopted that catchphrase as a shift away from their primary commodity, which is donuts, right? It's in their name, Dunkin' Donuts, and their expansion into the realm of the exploding popularity of coffee. Uh, the idea, obviously, is that Americans are fueled, they are empowered by what Duncan provides uh, and believes that you cannot operate without. America runs on Duncan. See, life requires all kinds of fuel, whether it be coffee for your body or, let's be honest here right now, that's not an actual necessity, it's a preference, Uh, whether it be gas for a car or batteries for a remote. Behind each of these is a power source that allows that particular item to operate as it should. And now the past couple weeks, you probably are wondering right now, what does this have to do at all with First John? I'm getting there, I promise. The past few weeks, we've looked at the call by the Apostle John in this letter to walk in the light. In particular, we saw two weeks ago that such... Walking, and again, whenever he's talking about walking here, he's not just talking about literal, like walking, like you're going to do after this, from this building over to the other building. He's talking about walking as like a metaphor for your lifestyle, your way of life. That such walking includes obedience to the Lord and love for our fellow Christians. And on the surface, that can sound extremely basic, I think, to most of us. But I think we could all agree that a life of consistent obedience and love for God is not necessarily easy. I think we could all agree of what we know or believe it should look like, but actually living that out is much more difficult, isn't it? In fact, it can be challenging, particularly when you live in a fallen, sin-cursed world that is competing for your attention and your affections. So what then motivates our obedience as Christians? What empowers our love? What fuels our worship for God each and every day? What do Christians run on? And what I'd like to show you today from First John 2 is that the love of God, not the world, empowers you to walk in love. If we are going to operate the way that we are called to, the way that John is calling us to operate, then we have to live and embrace and understand the love of God. Because when we understand the love of God that has been lavished on us, that is what fuels and empowers our ability each and every day to walk in obedience to God. And I put that in contrast here to the love of the world, which we saw in our passage here. Remember, living in a sinful, fallen, cursed world presents the challenges that we face as Christians. That challenge to walk in obedience and love for God primarily comes from the fact that you live in this world that's imperfect today. And you are in a constant tension as a Christian between the already and the not yet. In other words, you are already a child of God. You have been brought into his family. You are a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, but you're not there yet. And in between that time, when you reach glory with the Lord, you are on this journey of life, living in a world that is going to compete for your attention and your affections. And John recognizes that. That presents a real challenge for you, doesn't it? And many of you know what I'm talking about right now. I've, I've heard you say constantly what it's like to be a student in school. When you are working with friends and classmates and teammates who don't abide by the same desires that you do. And yet you also, if you're honest, feel the pull at times towards those things as well. You recognize the tension of living in the already, but not yet. In many ways, I, I kind of alluded to this at the beginning. This is really the, the basis for that really famous book that John Bunyan wrote that many of you have heard about. called The Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody familiar with that? How many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress or some form of it before? Okay, good number of you. If you haven't, I would highly encourage you to at some point. Because The Pilgrim's Progress is really a book where John Bunyan essentially uh, pictures the Christian life and the struggle from becoming a Christian, being forgiven of sins, and then that journey all the way to glory. And guess what? It's a book that's not filled with ease and comfort. It is filled with certain joys and delights, certainly, but it is filled with its challenges. And I think Bunyan does an excellent job of portraying that for us. But going back to our main point here, this idea of walking in love, right? The love of God empowers you to walk in love. And I think that walking in love was the focus really of the previous section that Chris taught you about, what it looks like to walk in love. And we understand that this idea of walking in love has a, a twofold working uh, as a, a, a love towards God, which we would call obedience, right? And there is a love that we exercise towards one another. Uh, That's really the focus of John in this letter. He's constantly kind of coming back to these ideas that for those who truly know God, that's going to show itself in love for God, which is obedience and your love and your service towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is really the theme we talked about at Winter Retreat this year, wasn't it? The idea that love from God that comes down and exists in the Christian life, the love that God has shown for you in Christ that has saved you and redeemed you, then empowers you to express itself outwardly towards others. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at those two sections that I, I highlighted for you at the beginning, and I want to consider with you two types of love and how to respond to each of them. Two types of love and how to respond to each of them. And this is going to come back to that bigger idea of how is it that we are able as Christians to walk in love. And we'll start with the positive one uh, that John is addressing here in verses 12 through 14. And it's really the call to remember the love that has been given to you by God. If you are going to be fueled and empowered to live in obedience to god you have to constantly every single day be arming yourself with a particular mindset and that mindset is the 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 meditation on what you have been afforded through god's love towards you and that might not become increasingly evident when we read verses 12 through 14 in fact Uh, John kind of cuts in here with a series of personal addresses, and it might have sounded weird as I was reading it. You notice he's talking to little children, he's talking to fathers, he's talking to young men, and you're left wondering like, so who's he talking to here? What's going on? Why is he doing this? And I'm not sure that it is overwhelmingly clear, even from all the commentators that I've read, uh, what John is doing or why he's cutting in like this uh and some people have wondered okay is he addressing different age groups in the church you know younger christians older christians uh somewhere in between uh is he talking to those who are different in different stages of their spiritual development whether they be kind of what we would call spiritual infants or spiritually mature adults uh at the end of the day Uh, There's good cases uh, to be made on both sides, but I think more importantly, rather than trying to get lost in all the different argumentation of what he's trying to do, the question is, who is he talking to? He is talking to Christians. He is talking to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have been saved and redeemed by God. And I think rather than trying to focus on those titles he ascribes to them, little children, fathers, young young men, whatever, I think it's more important to look at the description he gives of each of them, of what identifies or describes them. Because each time he addresses them, he says, because, because of this, because this is true for you. All is that all of that is under the, the clear umbrella of god's love that he has lavished on these people, so rather than working through them in order, I want to summarize John's thoughts under the following three ideas as those who are loved by God, you must remember first of all that you are forgiven. you must remember that you are forgiven. How much different would your life look if you constantly lived with that concept before your eyes? How much different would your life look if you constantly had that mindset before going into school each day, before going into work each morning to remind yourself you have been forgiven by God? How might that change the way you look at your cares, your fears, your earthly pursuits? I've become more convinced, I think, here in recent memory just the fact that so often the way we live each and every day of our life is a reflection of how much we understand our salvation. And that might sound like an ambiguous, unclear idea. Saying ambiguous makes that even less clear. It's a big word. I get it. But how often do you remember and think about the fact that you have been saved and rescued from the greatest threat in this world? The greatest threat being eternal judgment before a holy and righteous God the fact that you are no longer an enemy of that god but you have actually been graciously been forgiven by him the weight of judgment and death is no longer on your account and yet so often we live our daily lives as if that's kind of an afterthought and yet it's that very same God who loved you enough to send his son into the world to die in your place. As Romans 8, 32 reminds us that he who did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also give you everything you need? Right? God has already given you the greatest thing that you need, which is rescue through Jesus Christ, especially if you have put your faith and your trust in that. So just think about how that changes the way you approach each day. Does that, does that forgiveness mean you are now perfect? Obviously not, right? Although we could say yes in some sense, right? Because it's the blood of Jesus that covers your sins, so you are perfected because of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that you're going to live perfect, as we mentioned, because you still live in this messed up, fallen world, That's where we need the reminder of what John said in First John verses, First uh, John chapter one verses nine through chapter two verse one. Right? We covered this with Chris. He reminded us in verse nine of chapter one: "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." Chapter two verse one: "I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous." So, even though we still mess up, even though we still sin, even though we still stumble, we have that forgiveness that is applied to our account. And we can live in that freedom knowing that God's love has been lavished so freely upon us. But this love of forgiveness is only amplified when we realize that we are not just saved from God, but we are brought into his household as his very children. In other words, you've been adopted. You are not only forgiven, but you are adopted. Notice the language that Paul, or that John uses in this section here. He says, I am writing to you because you know the Father. You know. And that word know is not just intellectual. It's not just like you knew the answer to question five on the science test this last week. It's that you know relationally. The Father. You have relationship with God, the Father. Can you just pause for a moment right now, student, and try to grapple with that reality that the very one who spoke the world into existence is the very same one that now you can call your father, that you can call your dad, The one who says you are a child in his household? John intentionally uses language that describes the new intimate relationship that you share with God. We are all children who have been adopted into the family of God. And for anyone who understands anything about adoption in a a physical, earthly sense understands that there is intentional love and care that is involved. I'll put it another way. Adoption doesn't just happen by mistake. Adoption doesn't just happen on accident. There is a deliberate choice involved. I will choose you to be my family. That's amazing in light of our sinfulness. Again, I, I, one of the things I think shapes so much of our perspective of the Christian life and how we live and operate, I think it's, it's so reflective of our understanding of sin. I think the reason sin doesn't bother us the way that it should is because we don't understand the holiness of God enough. And I'm saying that for myself. I'm not just saying that for you. I'm saying that for myself. The reason I don't hate sin the way that I should because I don't understand the holiness of God, but when you understand and you start to grapple with the weight of your sin and what sin is in relation to a holy God, you think to yourself, what in the world would make God want to adopt you? What would make him want to bring a whole host of people into his family because of who they are? And the answer to that is his love and grace. Right. Because there is nothing in ourselves that is worthy to be chosen by God. And yet he still chooses to do that. I think understanding this acceptance and belonging brought on by the love of God only fuels and empowers the love that we return to him and others. Right. Like when you start to understand these things, do you notice how that changes your perspective of your obedience to God? You know, John's going to later say in chapter 5 that God's commands are not burdensome. In other words, they're not annoying, they're not a weight, they're not a dreading thing, right? Like, when God calls for us to do things, we understand that he's a good and gracious father who has saved us and rescued us from the greatest uh, of threats in our life. Why would we see his commandments as anything but freeing and loving to us? But thirdly, as those who are loved by God, you must also remember that you are victorious. Two times in this section it says here that you have overcome the evil one. For the audience that John is writing to, you have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, this confidence is grounded in the fact that you are strong, that you have the word of God abiding in you. Hopefully you know by now that this victory has nothing to do with you. And the same thing that your forgiveness had nothing to do with you. Your adoption had nothing to do with you. The source of your strength is the strength that God supplies. But notice here that the the certainty of the victory, you have overcome the evil one. He doesn't say you are going to overcome the evil one. Uh, He doesn't describe it as a possibility. You might overcome the evil one. He says, you have overcome the evil one. He's going to talk about later in chapter 4 that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Probably doesn't feel, I'm going to guess for most of you, that you have overcome the evil one, does it? I'm going to guess that in your day-to-day struggles, the challenges you face with people at school and teachers and parents and the like, right? You fill in the blank with whatever you want to. I'm going to guess that for most of you, it doesn't feel like you have overcome the evil one. In fact, you may feel more defeat than victory, more failure than success. But this is where John is reminding you of the ultimate outcome. That though the fullness of it has not happened yet, the outcome is certain. It's like saying the final score of the game has already been locked in. It's like saying the final chapter of the book has already been written. It's guaranteed. Your victory over the evil one, if you were united to Jesus by faith, is secure. Again, Romans 8 that I alluded to earlier is really helpful here. This is where Paul reminds us that nothing in all this world, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can overcome that love that has conquered you Again, this mindset helps us in the ongoing fight of obedience, which is motivated by love. you see how this fuels you? Do you see how if you arm yourself with this mindset each and every day, how love for God and love for others becomes, I'm not going to say easy, but it becomes possible, how it becomes accessible to you? These are the things that you as a Christian need to remind yourself of day in, day out, moment by moment, because it changes so much of who you are and how you can actually truly walk in love. But we mentioned that there are two types of loves that we need to think about and a consideration for the second one we're called to remember the love given to you by God, the second thing we need to think about is how you need to avoid the so-called love offered to you in the world. And notice there I put love in quotes. It's because this love that the world is going to claim to have for you is false. It's not really Love, it's not actually sacrificing for your good. But before we get to that, we have to understand what John is talking about when he says the world. This was actually a good discussion we had Wednesday night in our small group. Uh, What do we mean? What do you think John is talking about when he says the world? What's What's he talking about there? Is he talking about planet Earth? Don't love planet Earth. Or is he talking about people? Don't love the people in this world. I don't think either of those quite fit. So, what do you think he's talking about when he talks about world? Any ideas? Any of the boys in my small group want to take a stab at it from Wednesday night? No, you don't remember? Refresh your memory here. <clears throat> I believe it becomes actually clearer when we look at verse 16, the following verse, where he says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. So when you talk about world, in fact, I think it's maybe even better to think about world uh, through maybe the word worldview. Maybe think of it that way. When we think about world, we think about perspective we think about mindset we think about ideology and importance right the things that are important to this world that has been tainted according verse 16 by sin here john has in mind the world as it is tainted by the curse of sin the priorities and the values of this world which are under the influence of the evil one are not in line with god's desires So it is out of love for these people that John warns them not to go after these things. He says, you want to walk in the light? First of all, you need to remember who you are in Christ Jesus, all that's been afforded to you. That's going to help you walk in the light. But secondly, you also need to avoid the darkness. You need to avoid that which is going to throw you off track. But why? What is so bad about what this world has to offer? Again, I think we can find three main issues with loving the world in these verses. Is, the first is this, that the world is empty. The love or the so-called world, love that the world offers to you is empty. We see that at the end of verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice here that the love of the Father is absent in this type of mindset. This is... Student, this is what I would call the deceitfulness of sin. It talks a big game, but it cannot come through. It overpromises, it underdelivers. You can love the world, but it cannot, and it will not love you back. This is why you hear so often of people striving for the things of this world. Popularity achievement, academic success, athletic success, money, sex, relationships, partying. You, you fill in the blank of what you know your friends in this world says is important to pursue and go after hard. And yet so many of those people who press so hard after pursuing those things will tell you the same thing. It's It's uncanny how often they use the same word to describe it. And the word is empty. In fact, I just didn't have this in my notes, but it just came to my mind here. This is the very reality that Solomon discovered in the Old Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes, which not only is a fun word to say, is one of the most helpful books in all of the Bible, because it's Solomon's review of him trying to pursue everything possible, every pleasure outside of God in this world, and his summary after all of it is that everything else in this world is vanity. And that word vanity is just another word, a a fancy word for empty. It says it's like trying to drink Milk out of an empty jug. You're not gonna get anything. You're gonna think you're gonna be quenched, you think you're gonna be satisfied, but you're gonna come up completely empty. And that is because those who love the world lack the love of the Father. They truly miss it. They think that the world is going to love them back in its absence. That's why he says here, the love of the Father is not in that. You will know the love of the Father, you will feel the love of the Father, but you will not feel the love of this world. And that is in contrast with what we just saw, we are afforded uh, that saw uh, is afforded to those who are forgiven, those who have been adopted as children who are loved by the Father. So that's the warning of the the dangers of pursuing this way of living. And soon, I just, you know, these are always the sections that make me just want to plead with you this morning, right? Like, I, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I just want to remind you of this, that you may think that perhaps what you're pursuing in life is what you want, and what you desire, and what's good for you, or what others are telling you is good for you. But if you are not truly living it for the Lord, if you are not abiding in the love of the Father and pursuing things that are according to the love of the Father, you're going to find yourself a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, recognizing that all of it is empty. And Solomon's wisdom for you was, don't waste that time like I did. Fear the Lord now and pursue him hard now while you still have time. And so we see that the so-called love of the world is empty. Secondly, we see that the love of the world is deceptive. Verse 16 speaks to three ways the world tempts us. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All those words desires is that same word that the New Testament uses for lusts. right? Lust is a desire, a craving for something, And that can certainly be for good things, but most of the time the context tells us it's a a lust and a desire for that which is contrary to God. And you can probably see how these ideas are all connected to one another. In fact, I like the way that Tony Morita connects these three ideas together. He talks about the desires of the flesh being your appetites, right? The things that you crave, the things that you want, the things of this world that appeal to your senses and your desires. Uh, The second one is the desire of the eyes, which he would call the affections, right? So what you see, the input, the things that uh, appeal to those appetites. And it competes for your desires, your affections, the things you see that you then start to covet and want. And that's, Comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Whether it be something related to sexuality, whether it be uh, looks and appearances, whether it be success and performance, whatever it may be, all those things appeal to your affections. And the pride of life, that would be ambitions. So you have appetites, affections, and ambitions. Your ambitions being what you want to do in life. How you exist to try to make yourself greater. We talked about this on Wednesday night, didn't we? With Jesus and his mindset that says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To be great in the kingdom of God is not about rising up and taking in, but rather stooping down and pouring out. But the way of the world is always about rising up, isn't it? What's the next level you can get to? How can you make that much more money? How can you get that advancement? How can you rise to greater status and prominence among your peers? But notice how none of these desires come from God. According to the second half of verse 16, right? He says, these things are not from the Father, but from the world. You live in a world right now and really throughout human history. It's no different today than it was thousands of years ago. Where these types of things are encouraged all the time. How pursuing these things is good and right. This is part of who God made you to be. There is deception in this. And sometimes we are brought into the deception. Right, That you have to be pursuing these things. That these things are good and right for you. Uh, these type of cravings and desires related to sexuality and maybe even gender identity. No, 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 It's good. That's how God made you to be. You should accept that. You should embrace that. Don't fight that. It's actually unloving to, to fight that. That's not from God. That's from the world. This, this idea that you have to keep getting uh, more prominence, that you get more money to get a better job, to get a better family, to get a better, you know, X, Y, Z, all these things, that's not from God. That's from the world. And yet so often, if you were to recognize, that, like we so easily can just start to fall in line with the current of culture that we don't think anything different. We forget to go to God's word and we forget to ask the question, is this actually what God wants? Is this in line with God's will for my life? That language is dangerous and deceptive because John tells us that such things... Do not come from God. It is not love, it is simply lust. Such things are inconsistent with the children of God and hinder our ability to walk in love. But thirdly this morning, love the world is fleeting. What does John have to say about the world and its desires? He says they are passing away, they are fleeting, they are fading. In other words, this so-called love will not last. This stands in contrast to God's love which endures forever. We already looked at Romans 8 where we learned that we will never be separated from the love of God. But here's the real danger, students. If your true love is in the world, then not only will this world pass away, but you will along with it as well. The world is destined for judgment and destruction. And the question each of you need to answer today is, which love are you trusting in? Which love is empowering and fueling you each and every day? Now, John knew the answer for his audience. John knew who he was writing to and what was truly the love motivating them. He knew it was the love of the Father. That's why he writes to them the way he does in verses 12 through 14. He writes to these people knowing these things about them. And yet he still wants to warn them. And those of you who know the Lord even today, he wants to warn you of the dangers of this world. Because he understands what this world will do to your pursuit of the Lord, how it will quench and hinder the fuel that is meant to actually push you closer to the Lord. I think as we close, I want to think about a couple examples of this from, from Scripture. There's two primary examples I think we can think about. One of them is a, a character that probably most of you are not familiar with. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Demas. Have you ever heard of Demas before? Maybe you've heard his name, but my guess is that most of you probably don't know much about Demas. Uh, But Demas is a guy who Paul uh, talks about being very useful for him in ministry. In fact, at the end of the book of Colossians, the the letter that he writes to the church in Colossae, he talks about how Demas is one of these really helpful, useful men who served him, loved him, cared for him in ministry. And yet, by the time we get to 2 Timothy, Paul's letter to 2 Timothy, Uh, To Timothy. This is towards the end of Paul's life and ministry. He says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, he's writing to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Notice the language there. Demas. And love with this present world has deserted me. It's a prime example of how the pull and the influence of this world can really showcase where your love truly is. But I think we all know that probably the greatest example, the greatest picture we see of this is in two of the followers of Jesus, Right? two men who both failed miserably in their following of jesus and yet we see that what really drove each of them was a difference in love and if you don't know who i'm talking about talk about peter and judas two men who on the outside looked like they were great examples great followers of the lord people never suspected Judas to be anything but a faithful follower of the Lord. And yet, what was it that drove Judas to betray the Lord? Love for this world. Love for the finer things. When he realized that Jesus was not going to help him pursue the things that he wanted, he thought, I'll at least maybe try to get something out of it. What looked like love from the outside was truly just a love for the world and not for Christ. Now Peter also failed, didn't he? Miserably. And we see the remorse, the way that they responded very differently. But do you notice by the end of Peter's life, when he's sitting on the shorelines with Jesus after the resurrection and sits across the coal fire, that probably reminded him of the night that he betrayed Jesus three times. Jesus, in response, asks him three times one question. What was that question? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter, though hurt, having to answer three times, says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter's love for the Lord, though imperfect, was genuine. What is it that will help you to walk in love if you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Is to constantly remember the love that he has poured out on you. The love that forgave you, that brought you into his family, has now granted to you the final victory in the end. That is what fuels your obedience to the Lord now, even while you live in the sin-cursed, loveless world. Let's pray. Father, as we close tonight, uh, today, I just want to pray that you would indeed help our students to embrace and to better understand uh, this love. Help us to marvel maybe even in new ways that we haven't before and allow that to change just the way that we approach our mindset each day, the way that we seek to love our families, our friends, our classmates, those who, Lord, uh, are loving the world even. I pray that it would fuel us and empower us, especially on days where we don't feel so strong, where we feel carried by the cares of this world The fears, the worries, the anxieties, whatever it may be, I pray that your love would strengthen us and help us to remember that in Christ Jesus, the victory is secure. Even though we are pilgrims, exiles in this fallen world, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So equip us to do that work today, to walk in both the light and in love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.